about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Verses 17 to 34, and you can follow along in the handout or the church Bibles on page 1385. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house, and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes. He said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the, the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Good morning again. Um, 
It's a uh, very great joy to be with you today, uh, and I'm very grateful to Andrew for the uh, invitation to visit you in your sesquicentenary year. Congratulations, and praise God. Let's pray. Our gracious God, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for every good gift that you give to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of this day and the opportunity it brings to meet together in this way. And we pray, Father, in your mercy, would you bring your word to our hearts in the convicting power of the Holy Spirit that we might see your Son, love him, and serve him gladly until he comes. Amen. Uh, well, I uh, see from your website um, that you've expressed your mission as connecting people to Jesus, building people up in Jesus, and releasing people to serve Jesus. If you didn't know that, you should check it out on the website. Um, the first rector of the parish, the Reverend Robert Taylor, would certainly agree with that little summary, I'm sure, though he probably wouldn't have put it that way. Uh, the uh, little booklet, the little history booklet of St. Stephen's that was written uh, for the Diamond Jubilee in 1934 describes Mr. Taylor as rigidly adhering to the practices and principles of the Reformation. He was a first-class and 100% Protestant and low churchman, a man of unlimited and absolute faith in God is how he is described. He was the rector, I think, for about 41 years. So there's something to live up to, Andrew. Uh, and uh, this uh, faith of his, his unlimited and absolute faith in God was uh, marked, for example, by his refusal to ask people to donate to the building of the church, but only to pray. And as you can see, his prayers were most wonderfully answered. Uh, I also like your mission statement because it expresses the centrality of Jesus for the Christian. Uh, we are, above all else, disciples of Jesus Christ. Being a follower or disciple of Jesus involves responding to his call to repent and follow, being nurtured or built up by his word in the fellowship of his people, and relying on his spirit as we serve in his mission in the world. In Matthew 8 to 10, immediately after the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew unfolds Jesus' teaching on discipleship in his kingdom. And the headline of the passage that was read to us is in verse 17, when Jesus says that new wine needs new wineskins. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. New wine, that's the headline. And the punchline is in the last verse of the chapter, which we did not read, chapter 9, verse 37, when Jesus asks the disciples to ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers to the harvest field. So in our reading today, between new wine and new workers, Matthew records four encounters in the life of Jesus to show us two things, that Jesus is the king in God's kingdom, 
and to show us the shape of the kingdom that has drawn near in him. Now, by God's grace, for 150 years, uh, the fortunes of St. Stephen's no doubt have waxed and waned. But from the beginning to today, we know only one king, only one who wears a crown. We serve and belong to only one kingdom. Now, each of these stories involves miracles, uh, and uh, this can be um, problematic for people who are unfamiliar with the Bible or with the life of Jesus. We're inclined to think of them as sort of pious inventions of pre-scientific people. Uh, But if you are inclined to be sceptical about miracles, can I ask you to suspend your disbelief uh, momentarily, um, as you might have when uh, Ivan Kroll cuts off the little finger of Eli Bell or something like that. Um, And uh, as we consider each of these stories, can I ask you just to see that they have their own puzzles? For example, in the raising of the dead girl and the healing of the two blind men, Jesus sends the crowd away and performs the miracle in private. When he heals the blind men, he sternly tells them not to tell anyone. Um, they, they ignore him, by the way. <laughs> but he sternly tells them not to tell anyone what has happened. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't perform miracles to draw a crowd or launch a campaign. He seems to perform them in spite of the attention they attract. And so we'll think about the purpose of the miracles as we consider each of these stories, uh, if you're willing. Jesus says, new wine needs new wineskins. And then Matthew records these four brief interactions between Jesus and someone in need. But they're not just needy people. They're people in situations of extreme hardship. Each in their own way are as low as they could go. A woman with bleeding for 12 years, a dead child, two blind men and a man who cannot speak. In their own culture, they were outcasts, unclean, socially and religiously excluded, outsiders from their own community and regarded as beyond the scope of God's blessing outside the kingdom. But each interaction is a demonstration of how Jesus represents new wine. So I'd like to think about each one. Firstly, new life. The story of the synagogue ruler whose daughter has died is told in Matthew and Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel. Matthew tells us little about the father except that despite his status and prominent role in the community, he kneels before Jesus and expresses his confidence in Jesus' power. Verse 18, come and put your hand on her and she will live. It is one of the most moving stories in the Gospels. The anguish of the Father, who doesn't hesitate to seek out Jesus and to entrust himself to him. He's the ruler of the synagogue. He has status and privilege and learning, but death is no respecter of people, and no one will escape it. And I dare say, in a crowd like this, some of you will know this father's grief as your own. He could not be more desperate. 
my daughter has died. When Mark tells the story, some people come from the ruler's house, tell him not to bother Jesus because his daughter has already died. But Matthew emphasizes that Jesus, uh, that the father puts his trust in Jesus in the face of death itself. When they get to the man's house, the traditional professional mourners are already busy and when Jesus says she's only sleeping, they dismiss his words and laugh. Jesus empties the house and takes the girl by the hand and Matthew records she got up. There are two qualities of the kingdom of Jesus on display, love and power. First, Jesus takes the girl's hand. It is, I guess, the quintessential picture of parenthood, of the guardianship of children. A child will place their hand in the hand of their parent, grandparent, someone they trust and love and the child's whole world becomes safe. For a child to have their hand in their father's hand, in their mother's hand, is to be virtually indestructible. But more than that, there's power, there's new wine. When Jesus takes the girl's hand, here is new wine. The old religion said a corpse was unclean and anyone who touched it was unclean. Death doesn't belong in God's world. It is a sneer in his face as well as his own judgment on sin. But it was not meant to be. And the people were not to become accommodated to death. It is a scandal and an outrage. So when Jesus takes the hand of the dead child, He transforms death, not now an uncleanness that separates us from God, but because of Jesus, like a sleep from which he will effortlessly wake us. To raise the dead for Jesus, the King of God's kingdom, is as easy as waking a child from an afternoon nap. It's less than Jesus' own death and resurrection to make the dead clean. Because Jesus will not only touch what is dead and unclean, he will go down into death for our sakes. He will take our place in the grave and his blood will make us clean. Jesus brings the new wine of life that triumphs over death. Second, new health. New health. Jesus is intercepted on the way to the home of the synagogue ruler by a woman who has experienced bleeding for 12 years. It would be hard for us to imagine the extent of the isolation, poverty and vulnerability of this woman. Many of us are familiar with the extraordinary work of the late Catherine Hamlin and her husband Ron in Ethiopia for over 40 years. Uh, She was from Sydney, a Sydney Anglican, and a convinced Christian 
to the end of her life, as was her husband's. Catherine and Ron established the Fistula Hospital in the 1970s specifically to treat women for whom childbirth had left them with incontinence and other difficulties, as a result of which they found themselves expelled from their villages, eking out a lonely existence, suffering shame and rejection. The Hamlin Fistula Hospital has treated more than 65,000 women in 45 years, restoring them to their children, to their families and their communities. It is a rather stunning picture of extraordinary discipleship. But in the first century, there were no antibiotics, no hospitals, no Medicare, and this woman is a picture of utter desperation. And in her desperation, she imagines what she must do. Verse 21, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. And Matthew records the briefest exchange between her and Jesus. Take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment, Matthew tells us. Notice that Jesus does not only heal her, but he gently teaches her as well. Jesus calls the woman daughter. He recognizes and affirms that she has a place among the people of God. She too is entitled to the name daughter. For 12 years, we can safely assume no one has spoken to her, welcomed her into their home, addressed her face to face, looked her in the eye or treated her like a neighbor, a fellow Israelite. But Jesus speaks with compassion and purpose. Take heart, daughter. She has a place. She belongs to the family. It would have been news to her. But then he says, your faith has healed you. She thought that touching his cloak would heal her. Her faith was superstitious at best. I remember visiting the Vatican when I was about 18 years old, and I was surprised to find that the statue of the Apostle Peter had no foot, or rather, where the foot was supposed to be, there was just a smooth slab, because people kept touching the foot of the statue of Peter in the hope that they'd receive a blessing. They did that when the apostles were alive too. The book of Acts records that people thought that they could be healed if the shadow of the apostles fell upon them. Sydney Morning Herald journalist Malcolm Knox dismisses Christian fasting for Lent as seeking brownie points in the hereafter. The faith that saves is faith in the Saviour, faith in Jesus not touching his cloak. Jesus honours the woman's faith, though it is mixed with superstition, but the story is there so that we may learn what Jesus teaches. It's not our religious acts of devotion that are effective, but faith in Jesus, because Jesus is the new wine of the kingdom. He 
is the one who brings cleansing for the unclean, forgiveness for the guilty, life to the dead in sin. It's not even faith itself that saves, but Jesus in whom we place our faith. Faith is the empty hand that receives Jesus. He is the one to trust with our lives. He is the one to trust with our sin. He is the one to trust in the face of death. He is the one who gives life abundant and life eternal. New health comes from just trust in Jesus. And Jesus says to the woman, your faith has healed you. But the word has a broader significance. It's the same word for salvation. Your faith has saved you. The life of the kingdom, the life of justice and truth, the life of forgiveness and joy, the life of peace and hope come from Jesus. He can be trusted for all that in this life and the next. Third, new sight. Two blind men call out to Jesus. Son of David, have mercy on us. In the four Gospels, there are about four occasions when Jesus heals a blind person. If you think it's more, please let me know. In each case, there is at least the suggestion that the blind see something in Jesus that the sighted do not perceive. And the Gospels and... uh, Perhaps your own experience as well teach us that the homeless may have deep spiritual insight and professors may have none. And we are to despise neither. In this story, the men use the title Son of David. It's used by Matthew to describe Jesus in the first verse of the Gospel. It's a name full of the promise and hope of God's people for a rescuer. It's a title for the Messiah, the one who would establish God's throne and rule in righteousness and truth, defeating God's enemies and lifting up the poor and the oppressed. They see Jesus' true identity before he heals them. But his healing of the blind men demonstrates that he is the promised Messiah, who not only gives sight to the blind, but will restore the whole creation. Isaiah chapter 35, the prophet speaks of the Messiah. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. And Isaiah says again in chapter 35, everlasting joy will crown their heads, gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. The point of these accounts of Jesus' miracles is not merely to say that he had amazing powers, but to show that he is the focus of all God's plans and purposes for humanity and the world. Jesus is not merely a healer, but the pivot of history, the one on whom all of God's purposes turn. In the Bible, the secret of joy and gladness 
is not in expressing our identity, but in recognizing the identity of another, the Messiah, Jesus. The blind men are not defined by any part of themselves, but by what they see in Jesus. For now, we still live with sorrow and sighing, with the death of children and all kinds of social exclusion, with disease and decay and death. But Matthew records that the blind were given their sight and the mute were given song to praise God so that we would see that Jesus is the answer to our prayer your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Here is new wine, a king for others, not himself, a king for the lowliest, the blind, the deaf, the mute, the parched. Those who see that Jesus is God's king sent into the world, who hear the news of the reign of God, the glory of the God who's rescued who thirst for the love of God and are quenched by the water that only Jesus gives. New sight. And lastly, new speech. The last brief encounter involves a man who cannot speak through the oppression of a demon. This man is brought to Jesus by his friends. What good friends they are. How grateful I am for a friend who said, would you read this? How grateful I am for friends I discovered later had been praying for me for many years. What good friends they brought him to Jesus. The actual healing of this man is given almost no attention at all. Matthew simply says, when the demon was driven out. Instead, Matthew draws attention to the crowd and the Pharisees. The crowd are amazed and say, nothing like this has been seen in Israel. They are impressed, they are amazed, they are filled with wonder, if not yet understanding or faith. Sometimes people say, if Jesus were to turn up and do something in front of me, I'd believe in him, but the Gospels tell us that when Jesus did turn up and do things in front of people, they didn't always believe in him. But the Pharisees are in stark contrast. They can't deny that the miracles took place. They were there, they saw them, so did the crowds. So they don't deny that he did them. The opponents of Jesus didn't deny that he did miracles. They questioned the origin of his power to do them. Verse 34, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. They don't deny that he did the miracles. They deny that he did them by God's power and attribute his power to the devil. It's not only the murderous Pharisees who reject Jesus. The crowds at the home of the synagogue ruler laugh at him and scorn at his suggestion that he'll make death like sleep. And I suppose it would have been easy for Jesus to withdraw in the face of scorn but that would have been to abandon his mission. 
Ultimately, Jesus' mission is not only to welcome the rejected, but to be rejected. Isaiah 53 says, He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, familiar with pain. He was cut off from the land of the living, and by his wounds we are healed. The Messiah who endures the suffering of the cross for the sake of his people is not diverted from his mission by the rejection of others. And in the next chapter, Jesus will say to his disciples as he sends them on mission, don't expect anything better. Matthew reminds his readers that since there is still only one who can bring forgiveness restore relationships with God, bring justice to the earth and renew the whole creation. It's not too much for his disciples to bear some scorn and rejection for making known the things he has done, the trustworthy Lord that he is, the saving forgiveness that he secures, the transforming love that he offers, the death-destroying triumph of the cross and the empty tomb. Four brief encounters that reveal the new wine that Jesus brings. New speech that sings the praises of Jesus and prays for the coming of the kingdom. New sight that sees in Jesus crucified and risen the promised Messiah who renews the whole creation. New health that comes from faith in Jesus, the one supremely able to save us from the tyranny of self, the fear of rejection, the guilt of our sin, the despair of death. New life from the one who has conquered death and takes us by the hand. Jesus is the new wine of God who forgives our sins and renews the whole creation. For 150 years, St. Stephen's has proclaimed this Jesus and offered him to this community. And for all that has transpired over the last century and a half, Jesus remains hope for Newtown and hope for the world. Him we proclaim. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. 
For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.